Very pleased to welcome Hugh Cordy. He's series producer of A Perfect Planet for the BBC. Lots to discuss, but uh, are you in the United Kingdom? And if so, I hope your family and you are safe and healthy. Yes, they are. All there. I'm in Bristol, which is in the western part of the UK, and uh, I'm at home with my family and everyone's well. Thank you very much. And I hope that's true for you and your family. You look as if you're at home too. Yes, so far so good. Work from home is working just fine as of now. I don't know if you know this, but you spend so much time in India, but you would know. We had a glacier ice burst or an ice avalanche in Uttarakhand, which is in the north of India and the Himalayas, you know, bridges, roads, power projects, flash floods, dams, rivers overflowing, about 50 confirmed deaths, 150 missing. And everybody who's going to, you know, watch The Perfect Earth will resonate with this eventually when they see the final uh, episode, because this is what it's all about, isn't it? Let's start with that. The fact that in modern day India, as close as where we are uh, to where this happened, there was a glacier ice burst and uh, caused major damage. Why is this happening? Well, it's it's very simple. And I think everyone's tuning into this now that it is climate change and it's now widely accepted by almost everybody, a few presidents notwithstanding. And it's about our burning of fossil fuels. So the more fossil fuels we burn, the hotter our planet gets. And that impact is seen in our destabilized weather, you know, the melting of the ice caps and so on. So, you know, we have the the, the series, A Perfect Planet, is about the forces of nature, the natural forces, the volcanoes, the um, ocean currents, weather and the sun. And humans, you could consider as a fifth force. And it's this force. We're so powerful now that we're destabilizing the balance of those other forces. And the result is is what you, you've just described in uh, Utra... Uttarakhand. Uttarakhand. Yeah. In the Himalayas in the north. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned those elements very quickly, but I want to actually spend a little time on each one of them. The fact that volcanoes, active, dormant, semi-active, are so essential to life. One would always think of them as molten lava and destructive and things like that. But some of the most fertile lands on the planet are lands that have come out of uh, or just besides volcanoes. Let's talk about that. Yes, I think most people would agree that volcanoes are a destructive force. But I think what most people wouldn't or would be surprised about is that we wouldn't be sitting here without them. I mean, they are fundamental to life on our planet. They created our breathable atmosphere. They created the oceans. Uh, they're responsible for 80% of the land that we have on this planet. And the thing you've just mentioned, they fertilize our planet. So when volcanoes erupt, the billions of tons of minerals are ejected from these volcanoes, and they end up in the seas and the land and help fertilize our planet. So as you mentioned, the places with volcanoes tend to be the most fertile on the planet. And the sun itself, you know, one looks upon it as, as this large ball of energy. And you've actually gone out there with a great deal of research and filming and actually filmed areas uh, like the North Pole, which spends six months in total darkness and then six months in, in total light. And how there are certain creatures there who literally come back to life. I mean, I was stunned seeing that particular frog whose heart literally starts beating. I'd like you to describe that, please. Yes, it's one of the most wondrous things about nature. No matter where you are on the planet, animals have found a way to adapt. So this frog can't survive, you know, happily jumping around during the, the, the harsh winters where it lives. So instead of, it, it's a kind of hibernation, but it's extreme form of hibernation because this frog literally freezes. For all intents and purposes, it's like a block of ice and it'll stay like that until the warmth of the sun brings it back to life. And 
it's a sort of you know it's extraordinary to see this this animal that is frozen solid it looks it looks dead you know suddenly coming back to life and, and sort of effectively melting and its heart stopped beating and suffering no ill effects of the experience yeah and let's do a rewind back to the volcanoes i mean the fact i literally was watching this and i said to myself i'd be damned that the floor of volcanoes or you know this the inclines of those craters of volcanoes could actually be fertile breeding grounds for certain uh, you know animals to lay their eggs uh, fascinating Exactly. So there is a, all the Galapagos Islands are volcanic. Uh, the youngest of them is an island called Fernandina. And uh, in fact, it erupted two weeks before our film shoot. Uh, fortunately, the lava went down one side of the volcano that we weren't planning to ascend from. So the shoot went ahead, but we were there to film this land iguana. This is a very large reptile, very large lizard, maybe sort of a couple of meters, two or three meters long from head to the end of its tail. And every year, the female land iguanas ascend the side of this volcano to the crater rim and then descend to the bottom and lay their eggs in the warm volcanic ash. So that volcanic ash incubates their eggs. Extraordinary. And it's worked very well for them, otherwise they wouldn't do it. But of course, occasionally when there's a massive eruption, all the animals that are there at the time and the eggs will be destroyed. But it's such a successful way of rearing your young that land iguanas keep coming and doing that so they're very well adapted to that behavior and in the wonders of of nature which is what must really fascinate you about your job is the fact you know that there are these tiny insects who would actually get on to to figs and lay their eggs and immediately pass away die in 48 hours of having life after giving birth i mean this this has got to be years and decades of decades of research at the bbc and uh, you know its allied bodies there is a lot of research that goes into these series it was four years in the making we spent at least six months to a year compiling all these stories but that story you just mentioned with the fig was fig trees are a keystone species you have many of them in in india in fact your famous banyan trees which i've very luckily seen you know, the massive trees, they're kind of fig. And all fig trees, all wild fig trees are pollinated by tiny fig wasps, so small you can barely see them, two millimeters long. So this incredible ecosystem of, uh, and keystone species of figs are continued by these tiny little insects, which shows how even the smallest things are vital to our planet. But as you say, these tiny figs, these fig wasps, they enter the fig at a certain time and they pollinate the flowers inside because a fig fruit is has the flowers on the inside and once the fig is in the right stage of development, the fig wasp is allowed to come in. It lays eggs in the, the flowers of the fig wasp and then dies. And the males hatch earlier, one day before the uh, the females. And uh, the, um, the the males then mate with their sisters, <laughs> kind of incest, mate with their sisters. And then they, they tunnel out to the uh, outside of the fig. Females hatch and then leave the fig and go off to find another fig tree in exactly the right stage of, of development. It's amazing. And it, those females only live for a couple of days themselves. So it's an extraordinary life cycle. Well, uh, Hugh Cordy is director, series producer of A Perfect Planet. A Perfect Planet premieres in India on the 8th of March at 9pm only on Sony BBC Earth. So uh, make sure you set all your alarms and get there because uh, this is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating five-part series that premieres on the 8th. Uh, Hugh, before we 
continue and we will because we still have weather and the oceans to talk about. Two of the biggest reasons why I got into anything to do with voice on the radio or on TV and or, or as a broadcaster, one was the great Dan Maskell who used to commentate at Wimbledon. Fortunately, he is no more. And the other is Sir David Attenborough. And, uh, you know, you have a long association and it's still amazing. You can start a brand new series and you think you've heard enough of him and the moment his voice comes on, the goosebumps come back all over again. So just a little bit about this legendary, extraordinary man. Yes. Uh, Natural History films are totally synonymous with Sir David Attenborough and he's now 94 years old. And yesterday he recorded this this incredible message. I don't know whether you saw it on, on, on social media. He's so still very much active promoting, particularly now, the issue of climate change. But he's got this amazing enthusiasm, amazing drive. He's obviously an extremely intelligent person, but somebody who's still doing what he's doing at 94. It's because he's just fascinated and still so enthusiastic about the natural world. And I've been very lucky to have traveled the world with him on one of his series, Life of Mammals. In fact, we came to India. We filmed in the Rep Temple of uh, Deshnog, and uh, we went to the Kumela. It was a very, very good experience. But, you know, he's as nice in person as he appears on television. And you can't say that about all famous people and celebrities. But David is, as you find him, an extremely interested, enthusiastic, intelligent person. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure what natural history television would do without him, to be honest. <laughs> well, very well said. But just out of curiosity, I mean, how does this work? I mean, does he still, after all these decades of experience, have to rehearse? Or is he a performer? perfectionist or does he come and just get on the mic and nail it would he read it a few times you know mark out his intonations yeah. like the rest rest of us mere mortals <laughs> well okay so um with a series like this he's just employed to to do the narration but sure. of course you know he's not going to read anything he doesn't agree with so he goes through the scripts and sometimes he he changes the scripts and it's always very annoying when you see some of his changes you think damn that's better <laughs> you know here i am and i'm 30 40 years younger than david and it's like oh damn you know he's corrected my grammar or he's corrected some way of saying something but obviously there's there's also ways in which he likes to say things but i've been working on, on series that he's narrated for many years so i kind of know how he writes so i get less corrections i think i think it's <laughs> i'm pleased to say but he still does you know makes corrections and i think when it comes to narrating them i mean famously he can narrate a 50 minute film in less than 50 minutes you know on a good day what he does is his, his standard technique is to do a complete run through of the film without stopping and you know the lines that either were fluffed or, or weren't as good as you as, as they could be and so on and so forth. He's doing the same thing in the booth. And then at the end, you go through all the lines. So you just read out time cues and you say, David, can you do, uh, you know, 3.57 again? And he goes, oh, what was wrong with you? Okay, yeah. And so it goes on. But it, it rarely takes, I mean, Perfect Planet probably took two and a bit hours per episode. But one wow. of the interesting things about Perfect Planet is that obviously with a big landmark series from the BBC, you know, we use professional services, we use the sort of high-end uh, facilities houses. And so when we were doing this series, we'd more or less finished all the offline editing. That's the bit where you take all the footage and you, you create the picture. And then, but there's all the sound effects to do and the music and the narration still to go. And that happened February, March last year, just at the beginning of the pandemic and the lockdown. By the lockdown, we had only done two of the episodes in a studio, in a proper sound booth with David. So we still had three of the narrations to go. By this stage, he was shielding in his home in lockdown. I mean, obviously, sure, David, yeah, 94, yes. 
So we had to completely change. This gives you an insight into the great David Attenborough. So we had to completely change the way we do things. So he's at his house in in London, Richmond, and we send him up with a very professional mic record, mic, a bit like what I can see behind you there, sort of high quality microphone. We sterilize it. We put it outside his door. It's brought into the house and, you know, gives it sort of, you know, 24 hours. And then he used that microphone and there was a cable running from the microphone out of his dining room window into the garden. He covered his walls of his dining room with duvet covers and sheets to sort of stop the sound bouncing around, stop it making it sound so echoey. And then the cable went into the garden where our, our uh, sound recordist recorded him on a, on a table, you know, <laughs> and that's that's how we recorded three of the episodes. The first time we did it, it was incredibly hot. So the sound recorder's dubbing mixer had to sit underneath an umbrella. It was very, very hot. Second time, it was raining. So uh, that was more difficult. And he's still performing that way. So all the narrations that he does now is done with him sitting in his dining room. But of course, it's now midwinter in, in, in England. So David's built a little shed in the garden where the sound recorder or the, the dubbing mixer now sits. So a little bit uh, sort of uh, covered by the ele- from the elements. But I would challenge any of your viewers to try to guess which ones we did in a studio and which ones we did in his dining room. So, <laughs> And he completely took it in his stride. I think that was the important thing. He didn't bat a lie that he said, okay, well, we still got to do it. This is the way we got to do it. No problem. Yeah, you know, you've, you've got to change with the times and then that shows that he's really young at heart. So he did have a talk back with, with the gentleman outside, you yeah. know, chatting yeah, so with him. Had, there was a three-way going on. I was in Bristol on a Zoom link. So I we had two computer set up. I could see David. I could talk to David. And then I could talk also to the dubbing mixer in the garden in wow. London. So there was a three-way thing going on. So it was it was pretty interesting. Thank you very much for that. I mean, those are very valuable uh, lessons for me as, as a voice actor, a radio presenter. So, you know, just an insight into the way you guys work. But you're right. I mean, one can't imagine which one was done on the fly as yes. it were and which yeah. one was done in a, in a state-of-the-art yeah. studio. You didn't notice, did you? And you were professional, Rishi. So did you know <laughs> No, I didn't. I didn't. You know, it's like, you know, they say that the Beatles did some of their best music up in an ashram in Rishikesh, up in the mountains in the Himalayas here. And, you know, sometimes you can't make out the difference between what was put out in Abbey Road and there. I think it's just the feeling that's most important. You know, that's that's, that's really what counts. Let's come back to the weather and the oceans. Um, The oceans, again, uh, must be terrain that you're absolutely fascinated by the way you film the currents the oceans and you tell these stories it's so much of it that's personal isn't it and also that was probably the most difficult one because it's very difficult to see an ocean current um you know water movement is incredibly difficult and obviously a lot of the time it's happening below the surface but i think by choosing the sequences we did we sort of i think it becomes very illustrative and clear as to what you know, why you're getting wildlife in certain places. If you take uh, bait bulls, for example, this is where predators come together to feed on a sort of school of fish. And so the fish are, are where the currents are occurring because that's where the nutrients are. And so the predators, the dolphins, uh, the sharks, they're, they're following these currents too because they know it's like a motorway. They know by following these currents, they'll come across eventually a food source. It's a very, very unpredictable thing. But when it happens, you know, it can be unbelievably exciting. And, you know, some of the most dramatic moments you'll see in an ocean and we were very lucky with that one it was filmed in South Africa and the South African cameraman that filmed it said it was the most intense bait ball he had ever been 
part of or filmed. He said it sometimes it was just sort of enveloping him. And he was that was a bit worrying because when the school of fish were sort of surrounding him, he was worried that the sharks were going to come through and sort of like bite him by mistake. And so it was very intense, but it was pretty impressive. That's the opening sequence in the ocean episode. But of course, we used a little bit of graphics to try to um, try to illustrate how these currents work. And, you know, it's extraordinary that, you know, every single part of our ocean is joined. They're not, you know, we always think of oceans being separate, Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean. Of course, they're all one ocean. They all join together and currents circulate these oceans over a thousand years. You know, every drop of water on the planet sort of follows these oceans. Yeah. And weather systems, please. Let's close that loop. <laughs> well, yes, weather systems. I mean, for us, we call the program weather, but it's kind of more like climate because it's all about the distribution of fresh water. So that's what weather is. It's a transport device. You know, most of the weather is formed over the ocean. So water evaporates, cause, creates clouds, and then is blown around the planet by circulatory wind patterns and also the spin of the earth. And where they go is generally very predictable. And it's been like this for 10,000 years. So animals have, you know, sort of timed their behavior to the predictable cycles of weather. So if you take the Amazon, where we filmed 50,000 giant river turtles coming to nest, they turn up at a very particular time because that's the moment when the water level drops far enough to reveal these sandbars. And obviously, turtles need to lay their eggs on land. So these turtles come up the land, lay their eggs, and then that sandbar remains dry for long enough for the eggs to hatchlings to leave and enter the water systems. Now, the problem is, is that when weather systems are altered, you know, sometimes this happens naturally, but what's happening? now, as we discussed right at the start of this, is that human activity, burning fossil fuels, changing weather systems, that's upsetting these huge events, these events. So, you know, what's happening more often in the Amazon now is that turtles lay their eggs and rains return too early and wash all the eggs away, kill all the, all the hatchling turtles. And this is happening all over the world. You described it with the glacier melt um, at the start of this interview. These unexpected events are not coincidental. They are part of a bigger event that we humans are creating, climate change. I know you don't go into these series looking to create humor with nature or with animals. Well, sometimes you know, we do. Sometimes, oh, you do? I thought <laughs> no, it just happens no. on the fly on accident. Because I, I found it very amusing that there would be thousands, even a million snakes. And, you know, the, the male snakes come out of hibernation in, in yes. one of your episodes. And the female snake comes out a little later. And she has a bit of a, you know, like they say in the back in the days, there used to be a gladiator duel <laughs> to, to woo the uh, uh, the lady they want to marry or impress and she yeah. takes them up up a hill <laughs> I, leave right. to, a lot of I thought that was incredibly funny yes. uh, i leave you to tell the story please <laughs> yes well these are the garter snakes uh, some of the most northerly reptiles on the planet and uh, they're very short window because obviously it's quite far north so summers are short so they've got to get on with things so they come out at the first opportunity sometimes there's still snow on the ground when they come out they come out uh, the males come out early and they t they're smaller than the females they come out earlier they then warm up in the sun so they're ready to go. They've, you know, they've got some energy to uh, fight off their competitors and, and show what they're made of to the, to the females. Then the larger females come out, and I've actually been and witnessed this, and then the males go berserk. You know, when a female comes out, it's like it's every male for its, himself, and he's just trying to be the one. And uh, in that case, that uh, in, in, this, in the sequence that you just mentioned, yes, the female gives them a sort of like a, a task who's going to come up to scratch. So she goes up the 
side of this gully, quite steep gully. And the males are hanging on and they're falling by the wayside. By the time she gets to the top, there's only a few left. So she goes, well, you'll do then. You're obviously a good partner. <laughs> and also as somebody who's creating these things, there, there must be so many points when you yourself are completely surprised out of your skin. I saw in one of the episodes, a small little bird, almost like a cute little Tweety bird, turned out to be a vampire bird who actually sucks on blood. And the mother bird or the bird that it's sucking blood out of doesn't even seem to notice. And I was like, isn't that a little bit of like how what mosquitoes do to us? I mean, they gnaw away at us and we kind of flick them off and then suddenly we realize that they're sucking blood from exactly. us. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. This is the one of the most extraordinary stories. I, I was on this shoot. Um, it comes from an island in the Galapagos called Wolf Island. It's a very small, tiny little island, uninhabited, uh, very difficult to get to. Uh, you're not, you know, very difficult to actually be allowed on the island. It took us about two years to get permission. And on this island, Island, there are tens of thousands of seabirds, and the, one of the dominant seabirds is, is something called a Nazca booby. So, so it's quite a large bird, a large white bird, and a fish eater, obviously. And they nest on their island each evening, and this is where they also rear their young. But on top of that, there's a small brown bird, a bit like a sparrow. I'm pretty sure you have sparrows in, in India. Yeah, so, you know, we used to have loads of them in the UK, but they've, they've, the numbers have absolutely plummeted uh, for many reasons, but I won't go into. But they're just a really small common garden, you know, brown bird. And you don't think anything of them. But these birds were obviously blown to the island on a big freak storm. And then they found themselves on the island with very little to eat. They, finches are seed eaters or insects or nectar. And there isn't much of that on the island. So they had to look elsewhere. And where they looked were the other animals on the island, which were the seabirds. And what they do is they jump on the tail of these seabirds and break through one of the big flight feathers. And then the blood flows. And then the little vampire finches start lapping up the blood. And there's, there's a bit of a sort of melee as lots of other finches go, oh, there's one that's, you know, been cut. And they all jump on the back. And it is extraordinary that you mentioned it, that some of these seabirds, like, they don't seem to care. They just sort of like, oh, okay, well, somebody's on the back of my tail. Well, that's all right. Others don't like it. Others do sort of shake them off. And they think, scientists believe that... Uh, the reason why some of the boobies don't seem to mind being parasitized by the finches is because it probably started as a way of grooming the birds. So these little finches might have removed parasites. And so they were a good thing to the seabirds. And so some of the more dim-witted boobies haven't quite cottoned on to the fact that they're no longer grooming them. They're now drinking their blood, but they were only made into a formal species about a year or two ago. So they are the newest of the species, bird species on, on Galapagos, the vampire finch. And it's one of the great things about, you know, about the planet is that, you know, we get these amazing evolutionary sort of oddities, but it's a consequence of volcanoes because the volcanoes create these islands in the middle of nowhere. And then animals find their way there. They drift on currents, they get blown there on storms and obviously separated from their cousins on the mainland, they often evolve in very different ways. So 5% of the planet's land are volcanoes, but they contain 20% of the world's species. There you have it, uh, A Perfect Planet, five-part series premieres uh, in India, the Hindi premiere on the 8th of March, Sony BBC Earth. Uh, it's really unmissable and absolute landmark there. I have to sign off by asking you uh, how the BBC manages to get it so right. I mean, no disrespect to any other platform. When, when you see natural history shows, shows on the environment, shows 
Amazon Wildlife on other OTT or mainstream terrestrial television stations. What the BBC does is definitely a class apart in that aspect. And for somebody who's been associated with the institution for such a long time, I, I know it's very difficult to encompass it in a couple of words, but how do you get it right each time around? <laughs> okay, well, well, I'll try. Uh, I think partly is we've been doing it a long time. The BBC Naturalist Unit has been going for many decades. So, you know, we've had 50 or 60 years making these programs. And of course, you know, each time we get a little bit better at it. But there's another important, there are two ingredients that are very, very important for a kind of films I make. One is time and the other is money. And the BBC have always understood that. If you want to create these ambitious series, you need time and money. You need money to fail. Otherwise, you're always going for the low-hanging fruit. You know, these projects are ambitious and we're always pushing the boundaries. And so each time you see one of these series, they always seem a little bit better than the last one because we're always pushing the boundaries and new technology comes along. So that's the key, Rishi, I would say time and money and heritage, I suppose, you know, at the Naturist Unit for 50 years making these things. Wonderful. Hugh Cordy, thank you very much for your time and your patience. You've been very generous and lots of great insights for me personally, as well as professionally. Have a great day ahead and a safe time to you and your family. Take care. Cheers. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Rishi. Thank Thank you very much.